He was born on the 8th of January 1942 in Oxford into a family of physicians. In 1959, at the age of 17, he went to university in Oxford, where he received his first class bachelor's degree in physics. In 1966, he obtained his PhD degree in applied mathematics and theoretical physics, specializing in general relativity and cosmology. He went on to being one of the greatest scientists of our time, studying gravitational singularity and theorems. And through his work, he published one of the greatest scientific books, A Brief History of Time, which appeared on the Sunday Times bestseller list for record-breaking 237 weeks. He went on to win the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is the highest civilian award in the United States, despite being a Brit. And he died in 2018 at the age of 76. He was one of the greatest scientists of our time. But at the age of 21, he was diagnosed with an early onset, slow progressing form of motor neuron disease that gradually over decades paralyzed him. After the loss of his speech, he communicated through a speech generating device, initially through using one of his handheld switch and eventually by using a single cheek muscle. This man had this disease and lived with a disability for more than 50 years of his 76 years on this earth. This man's name is Stephen William Hawking. Now, the reason why I'm telling you this story is to let you know that despite having this disease and despite being disabled, he didn't allow it to be a disadvantage. Instead, it empowered him. Hi, my name is Fabian Morgan and welcome to Everyday Dialogue, the podcast where we discuss everyday experiences that shape our lives as human beings, whether it's celebrating our successes or painfully navigating our way through failure and trauma. These experiences determine how we show up in the world for ourselves and others. On this platform, I will be sharing my personal experiences as well as inviting a variety of guests who will share their most authentic or vulnerable stories where we lift up those who dare to show up fully in life. With a new episode every Saturday, we will be tackling a broad range of subjects that deals with what it means to be us, what it means to be human. So pull up a seat and join me at my table. Hi guys, welcome back to another episode of Everyday Dialogue. I have an extra special guest with me today. Welcome Tara, thank you for joining me. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited that I am getting to be on your show this time around. Thank you. So guys, um, me and Tara kind of connected, I think back in January, and then we had our first like Zoom meeting in like March, I think, and we've just kind of kept in touch. And yeah, we built a connection. She's, I can yeah. say she's my friend across the pond. <laughs> yes, I love that. Yeah, okay. we've we've had some really, really good conversations. And one of the reasons why I wanted to invite Tara on because um, we're going to be talking about um, ADHD and what it's like living with ADHD. And myself as someone who is a healthcare professional that works with people with not just ADHD, but other um, disabilities, whether it's mental health issues and other things, I'm really passionate about that. So I, I'm so glad that I've got someone that's actually having that lived experience coming on to speak to my guests because it's one thing for me to say it from my perspective as a 
support work or a support network but hearing it from someone like yourself I think my audience can definitely benefit from that so thank you well thank you for being like for wanting to share that I feel like there are so many people who have these preconceived notions of what it's like and and I think that it's really important for more people to talk about it firsthand so I appreciate that too yeah thank you um so how old were you and when was it that you were first diagnosed and you found out that you actually had ADHD so I am 35 now and I was 34 when I was diagnosed. Wow. So I was just diagnosed last year. Um, it's been about probably just about a year because I think I got diagnosed around this time last year. And prior to your diagnosis, did you sense that something was kind of off in terms of whether it's the way you process information or your behavior pattern? Did you, did you, what made you decide to actually get tested for that? So, um, you know, it's been, it's been a long road, I think. My, so I have two children. I have a 15-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter. And from the time that my son was very young, I knew, I, by four, I knew that he had ADHD. Um, it runs in my family. And so my priority was getting him help at that time. And it took until he was 12 to actually get the official diagnosis and to start getting him support in school. So um, from that point on, then of course I had my little one, she was one at the time, didn't really have anything to worry about there yet. So I was able to, to work on, I, I also have trauma, anxiety. And so those were the things that I was really focused on for myself once I got my son the support he needed. And once I started to really read about ADHD and recognize the things in in my son that I, I didn't know ha were ADHD related, I started to realize that those were things that I was experiencing. And um, especially now, he I mean, he's a freshman in high school, but as school's gotten, gotten more difficult for him, I've been able to relate to him so much. And um, I think that that was really what it was, where I was like, that was me. And mm. so I started speaking with my psychiatrist and my therapist about that and sure enough it seems like it's like everything makes sense now and um it's oh. been really life-changing for me yeah like all the pieces of the puzzles come together basically you've you've yes. you've cracked the code of why you think a certain way or behave a certain way yeah mm -hmm. absolutely it's actually interesting how your son got diagnosed at 12 and it took all the way for you to be in your 30s to diagnose and it, it sits perfectly with the statistic that I think it's one in every one female is diagnosed with ADHD out of every seven men. I think mm. that's the statistic. And it's yeah. it's crazy how there's so much more boys with that diagnosis than girls. And I think there's a lot more girls who have it. But society, when a girl acts a certain ways, they connect it to she's just being emotional yes. as a female rather than um, she might have some sort of um, learning disability. Whereas with a boy, because they think boys aren't supposed to be emotional and boys are supposed to be tough, once they have that... Um, um, what's that what's the word I'm looking for like unregulated emotion and personality yes. mm -hmm. they automatically goes yep something's wrong with him that's how I knew <clears throat> excuse me that's how I knew when my son was very young that it was more um specifically because of that that emotional dis dysregulation like there's a there's a level of what's normal especially for a toddler and then there's beyond that and so I mean 
there there was throwing chairs and things like that in in school and and that's what's beyond that and so um play therapy really helped him with that uh but to to add to that i have there are at least three women uh, that I can think of off the top of my head that I'm very close with. So I'm, of course, they're right in the top of, uh, at the top of my mind that were diagnosed in their 30s and their late 30s with ADHD. Wow. Yeah. I th- and I think more conversations should be had around this because I think the earlier people are diagnosed, the better support they can actually get. Because I think the fact that you you were actively advocating for your son to get the diagnosis, you're basically going to save his life with a lot of things. Because one thing, a lot of workplace, I don't know how it is in America, but in the UK, a lot of the workplaces, once we know you have a disability, we have to put certain provisions and adaptations in place to support that individual. So my next question to you specifically is, how has that impacted your work? So since you find out that you have ADHD, did you tell your workplace? Because I know in um, here in employment, you need to fill out something called a health questionnaire assessment where you declare any sort of um, health issues or um, disabilities that you have. And the workplace has to put provisions in place to support you, whether it's reducing your workload or giving you diff- alternative duties. Have you told your workplace and what was the outcome of that? Well, that is a very interesting story because um, I was with my employer for two and a half years when I was diagnosed and I shared my diagnosis with them um, because it felt like, oh, well, this explains why I struggle with staying organized. I'm a hustler and I take my work very seriously, um, but I struggle with staying organized and uh, staying like focusing on things. So I've been able to do a lot of masking and a lot of just based on knowing, well, I need to get these things done. I've, I've put a lot of things in place already to manage it, but my job was, because I am no longer employed there, um, very, very timeline-based, um, lots of managing many projects at the same time. Um, and so I needed some support with staying on top of things and what was happening well, and, and I felt this way. And so there's also this level of, well, what's rejection sensitive dysphoria and what's actually happening. Um, I felt as though it was more of why isn't this getting done? Why isn't this getting done rather than, Hey, how can I help you? Mm. And, um, I do think that that's generally an issue, but, uh, it was still a struggle. So, uh, toward the end of last year, I decided that I was going to go ahead and um, in the U.S. there is the Americans with Disabilities Act, which is what then requires employers to provide support if they are able to. Um, And so it's a whole big process where my healthcare providers have to fill out a form to let my employer know what my restrictions are, what my needs might be. And then it's up to my employer to decide whether or not they want to implement those things. And um, so I had a little bit of trouble because my psychiatrist left, um, gave no notice, just said, hey, this is my last appointment with you and left. Oh, wow. And so I was in the middle of trying to get that those um, accommodations. And so then it takes a few months to find a new psychiatrist, to 
establish a rapport with a new psychiatrist before they are willing to fill out any paperwork for you. So three months go by, my psychiatrist is finally willing to fill something out and I got physically sick from the stress. So um, I wound up on leave for a little while and I was released to go back to work in April, the, toward the end of April. And my psychiatrist gave a very brief letter basically saying she can go back to work. She just needs to be able to work a hybrid schedule and take breaks as needed. Breaks are built into the employee handbook, so no problem there. I was already working almost fully remote before, so shouldn't be an issue either. Well, uh, up until last Friday, I was still trying to get them to allow me to return to work. There was a lot of red tape. Wow. Uh, it was just an absolute nightmare. And now, mind you, I'm a single mom of two kids with absolutely no income because I'm no longer disabled, according to um, our like the state disability board. Uh, so I didn't need disability payments anymore. I wasn't qual. I didn't qualify for that anymore. And then um, I also had no income because my job wouldn't let me come back. So um, as of last Friday, we finally agreed to go our separate ways. It was a mutual agreement and um, I still have no income because we're still trying to hash that part of it out, but uh, it hasn't been great for me here. <laughs> All of that to say. Yeah, that's quite tough. And it, it, it just shows as well that your workplace is very um, non-empathetic towards your, because I think one thing they should factor in is your performance overall in general. Do you know what I mean? To, towards their decision. But what I think is a little bit crazy about the law in America is the fact that your employer can choose to adapt themselves. Because in, my, in the UK, how it works, if you've been in a company for a long period of time, over two years, and you develop some sort of an illness, they cannot just fire you. They can't. They have to either switch roles or just accommodate your needs because it's obviously not in your control or not your fault that this issue um, developed. So it's actually quite it's unfortunate. Here, sorry. Yeah, it's similar here. Unfortunately, there are a lot of loopholes. And that's, I think, what, what I'm finding um, is the most frustrating thing because the fact that they could drag out for as long as they did my return or the decision that to, to not have me return. Um, I mean, I provided them a letter on April 25th and June 2nd was when it finally was semi-resolved because I said, listen, I have no income. I can't even collect unemployment insurance right now. Uh, I'm going to get evicted from my apartment and I have two children to provide for. So we need to come to some sort of a resolution. We need to do it now. I spoke with three attorneys. They gave me advice. Um, they basically said to keep trying before I hire an attorney. Um, and so here we are. Wow. Wow. That's, that's tough. That's very unfortunate. Sorry to hear that. Wow. Yeah. You're go you're definitely going through it at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah um, would you say be having ADHD, would you say that's made you a better mom to your son? Because obviously you were saying that your son has ADHD. Would you say because you have the diagnosis, it's easier for you to kind of empathize, understand what he's going through and also be a better parent to him? I think that, well, empathy wise, absolutely. I think that, um, 
as a parent with ADHD, I have my own sensitivities and issues as well. Mm -hmm. So um, while I can understand probably more than most people, um, I guess neurotypical people, what why my son is doing certain things. Um, there's also the challenge of being able to regulate my own emotions and not react as, uh, I mean, sometimes I'm, I just react rather than think. And then I'm like, oh, I shouldn't have yelled at him. Or, you know, um, whereas maybe somebody else might have been able to take a step back and say, okay, I need to think about this first and act after. So there are those challenges as well as uh, with a noisy four-year-old who um, I, I'm not sure whether she has ADHD or not, but she definitely has uh, sensory sensitivities. Um, loud noises upset her so much that she kind of just collapses and um, whimpers while there is a loud noise near her, like walking her into school today with the lawnmower nearby. Um, I had to carry her and while she covered her ears and just comfort her and tell her it's going to be okay. It's almost over. Um, so it's hard for me because then I'm like, ah, she's freaking out. I'm freaking out. And, um, you know, the, the overwhelm of it, I think it can be really challenging for me. So it's, it's a give and take. Yeah, I understand. Yeah. It, yeah, it's not easy at all. I think when, when when I first worked with people with um ADHD and, and things like autism was when I was managing a children's service and young people, as you know, their emotions are literally, they can go from zero right. to a hundred or a hundred to a zero to zero in seconds. And right. um, I remember supporting a young, young person who emotions were so all over the place. He, his girlfriend broke up with him. After he cheated on her, yeah, mm -hmm. bearing in mind, and he literally ripped one of the door off the hinges. Oh my goodness. In the service because he was that mad. And yeah. I had, yeah, and I had to sit down and speak to him and just basically say to him, like, what's up? What's going on? And he was just basically telling me what happened and that he was angry. And what I find what I found worked well is being empathetic but also having firm boundaries so one of the things that I used to do is whenever they damaged the property they would have to pay for it because you know sometimes they damage the place and they think oh I'm going to get away with it no you're going to pay for it oh but I only get pocket money well you're going to pay for it in small doses whether it's yeah. 10 pounds a week we use pounds here in the UK so whether it's that like 10 pounds a week or 20 pounds a week until you make the full payment you will be paying for it and what that does is when they're angry, before they make they damage the property, they think, because they think, wait, I'm going to be paying for this if I damage right. it. And yeah. I find things like that does help. Um, I don't hold anything against them. So even if they're angry, once we speak and I put certain things in place, I reset. I act as if they didn't do anything wrong. Because what I find with a lot of young people with behavior issues is the outside world are constantly treating them like crap for being the way they are. So they already get that from the police. They already get that in school from, from um, teachers. So I try not to create that environment. And sometimes they're shocked. They're like, how are you talking to me normally when yesterday I told you about your mom or tell you something degrading? It's a new day. 
Right. And that allows them as well to say, do you know what? I messed up. And sometimes they come and apologize without me even having to, before I even get to have a conversation with them, because they were able to sit down and reflect and realize, you know what? Fabian has actually done a lot for me. Let me go and actually apologize. Right. Um, so, yeah. So I think that's one of the things. I think one of the negative stigma is from society, the way they look at people with ADHD. Have you told anyone about your diagnosis as in friends, family, and has anyone treated you personally differently? Do you notice any sort of difference in the way you're treated by society? Um, Apart from I work. Talk to, <laughs> I talk very openly about it um, okay. with friends and, and family because uh, it runs in my family. So it's kind of the gift that keeps on giving in my family. Uh, every generation, as far as we know, has it. So <laughs> okay. um, that any, any generation that's still living, I should say. And so, um, that not so much because we all get each other and it's kind of like, Oh, you finally got diagnosed. So, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, I, I really do feel as though when I told my employer, whether or not it was intentional, uh, I, I did feel like I was looked at differently. And, um, there, there's this, idea and I've noticed it also with my with my son's teachers as well where unless they have a child who has ADHD they still struggle to understand that he's not lazy for example um I mean his math teacher kind of said well he's either this this or this and one of the things was that he doesn't care and I'm like I can assure you that he does care I know he cares because he tells me all the time how frustrated he is and if he wasn't if he didn't care he wouldn't be frustrated so um those kinds of stigmas are are, are really tough i mean the fact that i overpromise and under deliver for example is is a big challenge for me and i'm trying to get better about that saying you know i'm going to do this by this time but then maybe not being able to do that because i didn't consider how long it would actually take me to do it. I wanted it to take me this long, but it took me longer. Um, so just trying to, I think that it's more with trying to manage my own expectations of myself and, and communicating that with people better. Um, but I do feel very strongly. And um, I was on the diversity, equity and inclusion committee at my um, former employer and right before I got sick, I had brought up to the head of that committee that I feel as though the management especially, and then to trickle down from there really needs training on understanding invisible disabilities. Because if you don't look like you're disabled, and you generally look like a normal person, um, it's almost as if you're treated like you're making excuses. You're not taken seriously. And I think that that is a huge, huge challenge with, do I tell them because I need the help or the support or even just for my boss to understand that this is why things are happening and I'm working on it or are they going to look at me differently? Am I going to be treated differently? And is this going to ultimately hurt me? Yeah. 
And one thing I'd, I'd like to say as well, I, I, I try not to call non-disabled people normal. I yeah, say, well, that's why I said yeah, I, yeah, you did the quotation, but I thought I'd mention yeah. it because obviously the audience can't oh, yeah. see your quotation. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, yeah, so um, we say able-bodied or yeah, uh-huh. or non-disabled, but I do, yeah, I do yeah. hear your point. It's true. There is definitely this um, negative stigma and the way people are looked down on, or you might not in their mind, you might not fit what they view as someone being mm-hmm. disabled. I think right. when you don't have a physical disability and you say you're disabled people think is that person really telling the truth Mm -hmm. and I think a lot of the times people get um judged by that because in my family I know you've got ADHD one in your family what runs in my family is mental health issues so Mm -hmm. I have a lot of family members who suffer from schizophrenia it's a big thing I've got an aunt I've got cousins, I've got grandparents, like I think my granddad's mother had schizophrenia. So it it runs in my family. And because I am aware of that, I protect my mental peace at all costs. I don't go into relationships that compromises my mental health. Like the minute I start to feel, I'm starting to think a little bit kind of off, I'm out the relationship. And that includes every relationship, friendships, relationships with family, because I know how easy it is for it to be triggered. So I try to safeguard myself. So sometimes knowing something runs in your family is a blessing because then you can preempt how you're going to handle the situation. Because a lot of my family members that get diagnosed with um, schizophrenia, they get diagnosed late. Like I have an aunt that got diagnosed um, after her son died and literally she's in her late 50s. Oh wow. But we've always kind of known. Right. She her she goes through the ebbs and flow. She goes through a period where she's okay and then she goes through a really dark period where she's going through really serious depression or her behavior pattern. It feels like you're dealing with a completely different person. Right. Um but it's also been open to getting help. So I think because I'm fully aware of my what runs in my family and as much as I've never had an a psychotic episode, I would never rule it out as something that can happen to me. Oh, yeah, of course. So I try as much as possible to protect my mental health and my mental peace, for sure. Yeah, that's I think, important. I mean, just in general, but especially if you know that it can be triggered, um, it can trigger something something more. Um, I mean, I also do have a, a physical disability. Um, when I got sick in January, I was diagnosed with psoriatic arthritis and so again I look like I'm able-bodied because for the most part I can kind of hang out and do whatever but people don't see me in the morning when I'm struggling to get out of bed people don't see me on days when I can't get out of bed because I'm in so much pain that basically I get my daughter ready for for school get her out the door usually late because I it's so difficult to to get myself together Mm. and to get her together and then um I stay in so uh those kinds of things as well I mean it's it is relatively invisible because I can I can walk talk for the most part as if I'm I'm able-bodied it's the it's the bad days that people don't see exactly one of my best friends actually she's she has MS as well and it's really bad generally she's fine she's a single mom gets up takes her son to school whatever but when she has it it's really bad and she's somebody that wants to get a job 
and she's worked, she's got her degrees, but she can't keep a job long-term because she would do a job six months fine. And then she goes through a two week period where she can hardly get out of bed. So mm -hmm. I, I definitely understand what you're saying. And it's very ad hoc. You don't know when it's going to come. Exactly. Yeah. Is she, she really struggles with that. Yeah. That's one of the things that, um, my employer was asking, well, can you give us notice if you're going to need to work from home? No, because I don't know this disease is so unpredictable. I don't know when I'm going to need to work from home. I know the days that I usually feel sick from my medication. So it's usually going to be Thursday because I take the medication on Monday and it takes a little while to kick in. Um, but, but otherwise it's like, I have no idea. I can't predict it. Believe me. I wish I could. <laughs> yeah. And it's, and it's really frustrating because m my friend said that she takes medication and then she's got the meds that really helps with the MS, but then the side effects for other things, yeah. it's awful. Yeah. I, um, I'm seeing my rheumatologist on Tuesday next week. And I, I will be speaking with him specifically because the medication that I'm on, I'm on two medications now because the one wasn't enough. So he wanted to kind of double up. Um, the one, the first medication is a very low dose chemotherapy. And so he wanted to add a different medication on top of that so that he wasn't giving me more chemotherapy uh, because I would start to lose my hair and things like that. And obviously those are very undesirable side effects. Um, but the second medication, in addition to the first one, they both upset my stomach so badly that it's hard to eat. Mm. Um, so it's like, I'll, sk I'll skip doses because I forget because I have to take it twice a day. And then I'm like, oh, I can eat. And then I take medication. I feel sick again. I'm like, oh, you know, it's, it's, um, it's tough. It's just not. Yeah, it's, it's not easy. It's, it's one of your side effects, um, fatigue as well. Cause my friend takes her meds. She tries to take it at night. And mm -hmm. the reason why she takes it at night, because the minute she takes the meds, she's out. She goes, oh, really? she tends to go to sleep quite quickly. So sometimes she doesn't eat for the whole day. So she can literally eat in the evening, then take the meds and then she goes to bed. Mm, yeah, that's rough. I mean, I try to plan it out so that I'm eating and then taking the meds because of how much they upset my stomach. But um, the one, uh, I just take it at night because it's easy to remember right before bed. I take it after after I eat. But that's the one that that makes me sick all day on Thursdays. So it's like I really don't want to take this, but it's supposed to help. I mean, I can walk around now without, for the most part, I'm not having like really bad days. So it's helping a little bit, but it hasn't hasn't cleared up my psoriasis, and um, I still have pain sometimes where it's hard to walk, especially yeah. on stairs. Yeah, of course, of course. Um, with your son, what would you say? How, how old is your son at the moment? My son is 15. 15. Um, so when he was diagnosed at 12 compared to him being 15 now, how has his, um, diagnosis kind of manifested? Cause I know teenage years are the toughest years. What would you say are some of the biggest challenges you're facing with him now um, being a teenager? I think that the, the biggest challenge has been for him to accept help, um, for him and for him to ask for help. Originally, when he was diagnosed, he was also um, he was also given a prescription for medication to help manage the symptoms, and he didn't like the way that it made him feel. 
which is completely understandable. I mean, if you don't like the way something feels, you're not going to want to take it. But as a child, um, you don't necessarily understand, okay, there are other options and not everything is going to feel this way. And so it was basically a hard no for medication for him from there on out. He didn't want any medication because he didn't want to do the experimenting part of it to find what worked for him. Um, like in contrast for me, I tried every non-stimulant medication. So I think it was like four or five different types of medication I tried before I wound up trying Adderall, which I wish I had tried sooner because it helped so much. But um, yeah, he he didn't want medication. And, and now I think that he's more open to it, but only because it's now affecting whether or not he's going to be able to play sports in school, because if he doesn't do well in school, he can't play sports. So um, there's that. Um, just generally asking for help uh, in school if he's struggling. Rem ha having him remember to do things that I ask him to do. Very simple tasks. Um, and what, I, what I've learned is, okay, I'm trying to give him one-step tasks rather than things that take multiple steps because as a person with ADHD, I understand that it can be difficult to remember multiple steps unless it's written down and that's a lot for everyone. So I give him the simple stuff like taking out the garbage on the same day every week or emptying the dishwasher every day because those are chores that help me still but are also easy for him to remember to do because it's at the same time every day and it's the same simple task mm -hmm. um that's still a challenge because out of sight out of mind if he's in his bedroom he's not thinking about what's going on in the kitchen for example he's just thinking about his little world there because uh, the other issue with adhd is object permanence so um i mean unfortunately <laughs> with adhd object permanence also means people uh mm -hmm. so that's a tough one I think for everybody, but, um, yeah, it's, it's really just, it's tough. It's really tough. Yeah, it, it, it is. So I'm going to give you some advice from a healthcare professional standpoint in regards yeah. to your son. Um, one of the things that I would um, encourage you to do is try and explain to him that letting people know, and when I say letting people, I'm talking about like teachers in school or when he grows up to get a job and he's in a workplace, letting people know your diagnosis is going to help him because that's going to be able to empower him. And how that's going to empower him is they're going to be able to make the adaptation they need to help him thrive. Mm -hmm. um, and just try and use loads of simple examples to explain that to him. I'll, and I'll give you an example. Like, for example, my mom, my mom found out while she, she, so she went to university quite late. She went like four or five years ago. And it wasn't okay. until she went to university, she found out she had dyslexia. So when oh, she was at university, okay. she just couldn't understand why things weren't connecting or her spelling was kind of off. When she got the diagnosis and she was able to know what her strengths were, and adapt her study time and the way she does her assignments she yeah. completely smashed university she got one of the highest grades in her class by the time she graduated so okay. just explain to him that knowing your diagnosis and understanding how it works isn't a negative 
you want to be able to thrive, but your way of doing things might be different from everybody else, as long as the results are the same. Because I think sometimes people with um, learning disabilities, they don't want people to know because they feel like I don't want any preferential treatment or I want to be able to get to the same finish line doing it the same way as everyone. But it doesn't right. work like that. The journey, everybody journey is different. Yep. Everybody journey is different. So I found when I explained that to a lot of my young people, that kind of helped them because I said to them, you're basically trying to win a race on one leg because you're refusing to tell people what your diagnosis is so we can put the right things in place to support right. you. So try and explain it to him in that in that sense. Yeah, I will try that. Absolutely. I mean, um, I think that the other other part of it is not necessarily even preferential treatment, but feel, there's a, there's almost like a little bit of shame. There is shame. Yes. Because, you know, it's, well, I, I need special, I need help. Right. Um, I need extra reminders, for example, or, um, it, it feels like, why can't I just be like everyone else? And why can't I do things like everyone else? I don't want people to think that I am less than because of that. And um, what's interesting actually is, so I, I just had him evaluated by the child study team at his school. And so they were evaluating him because he had some support, but it was really just like extra time for handing in assignments and things like that. And there wasn't really any structure and that's really what he needed in school. Mm -hmm. So um, I went to them and said, look, this is not enough. He's still struggling. And it's your responsibility as the school to give him more and help him more. He's in a public school. I'm here. I'm telling you that, that this is not enough and this isn't working. We need to do more. And so they did um, lots of observations, different tests. And what we found, what they found is that he actually has an above average IQ. And so while he is struggling in school, it has absolutely nothing to do with his intelligence. He, um, and, and I also have an above average IQ. And so again, while I struggle in, even in, in, um, college here, so I, that's university there. Mm -hmm. Um, I, it's because of my processing time for certain things, which was the same thing with him. Um, and so I actually asked the school previously, are there audiobooks that he can read and follow along with? Because for me, what I have found is I retain information better when I am both hearing it out loud and reading it at the same time. Mm. Um, so, so that kind of thing helps me. Uh, so there, there are all these different things that we kind of have to try out and figure out what works in order for us to have a positive outcome but like he he tests great he gets 100s on some of his his quizzes and he's not doing any homework uh so it's like you know it's not it's not his ability it's the fact that he is struggling to keep up to ask questions um to keep track of certain things if you, if you give my child a piece of paper he's gonna lose it most likely i would so 
<laughs> it's all about perception, really. And I think it's just about him looking at the glass half full rather than half empty. Yeah. Um, I'm going to end this episode by talking about talking to you about some of the famous people with ADHD and I want you to go back to your son and speak and tell your son these people because he thinks that that there's negatives now these are the positives so these are some of the people who excel in life who have ADHD Michael Phelps has ADHD Adam Levine has ADHD Justin Timberlake Simone Biles one of the greatest gymnasts of all time Howie Mandel, who's a comedian and film TV producer. Ty Ty Pennington, who's a designer and an actor. Solange Knowles, Beyonce's sister, has ADHD. Jim Carrey, Shannon Tatum, Emma Watson, Will Smith, Michelle Rodriguez, Michael Jordan. Oh, wow. Whoopi Goldberg, Bill Gates. And the list goes on. So those are some of the most successful people in their field, in their profession, and they have ADHD. The athletes is are especially important uh, for my son to know because he is an athlete. He is one of the most incredible athletes I I, I know because he he's just built for it. He's made for it, and he loves American football, and that's what he wants to do professionally. So. his that's his dream and I want to support him in that so knowing that there are very very successful professional athletes um, with ADHD maybe we'll give him a little bit of confidence that he can do it too exactly and maybe they might have their disadvantages but their strengths are superb and they focus on their strengths because Michael Phelps is an average he's the greatest swimmer of all time Simone Biles is an average she's the greatest gymnastic person of all time so it just shows you that once you hold on to that power and use it nothing can stop you and it's that whole thing of you know like when that when you know that you're disadvantaged you work three times as hard to achieve that right Mm -hmm. so that's I think that's what it is yeah that's what it is that's wonderful I am I'm so glad to know that there that uh that there are people out there that are so successful. And I think that that's also really important for your audience to know that just because we think differently and our brains work differently does not mean that we are any less intelligent or less capable. Exactly, exactly. And I want to say thank you so much for coming on to my podcast. I want to send your son and you lots of love and I wish him all the best. I wish him all the success in his career. And I'm sure he's gonna he's gonna definitely smash it. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. At the end of this video, guys, I would really appreciate it if you could subscribe, rate the podcast and also leave a review.